Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, it's not just abortion. Conservatives see the Supreme Court as an opportunity to strike down bans on gay conversion therapy. And a test case is coming out of Tacoma. We'll hear from lawyers from both sides. The shortage of baby formula shaping up to be a campaign issue on Capitol Hill. And Congress looks into the phenomenon of UFOs. All of that coming up. But first, we figured we would begin this week on candidate filing week. It is a tradition in Washington state, a week in May in which candidates for whatever political office officially declare their candidacy by getting their name on the ballot. And man, there are a lot of candidates this time around for the midterms. Joining me now is Paul Query with the Washington Observer. And uh, let's start in eastern Washington because the biggest race looks like it's going to be against Dan Newhouse, the incumbent there, but he's drawing far more Republican challengers than he is Democrats. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Dan Newhouse is kind of under fire from the right for his vote to impeach Donald Trump over the January 6th insurrection. And as a result, he's uh, drawn a real crowd of Republican challengers. Most notable, you've got Lauren Culp, a failed candidate for governor in 2020, who moved out of the 5th District into the 4th District to challenge him. Um, You've got Brad Clippert, who's a member member of the legislature from out there. Um, You've got a guy named Jared Sessler, who owns a bunch of property around Prosser um, and is most famous as being a former NASCAR driver. So, you know, there's just there's just kind of a lot of folks out there. And in a low turnout primary, which is probably what we're going to have since the primary is in August, could be sort of dicey result. Um, you never know, really know who's going to emerge from something like that. You think Dan Newhouse is in trouble? You know, my feeling is that Newhouse gets through the primary and he probably gets one of these challengers from the right. And that means that he gets to run both, you know, as an incumbent. And he's also likely to be the beneficiary of the 30 percent or so of the vote that would vote for a Democrat if the Demo- if there were a Democrat on the ballot. So, you know, my sense is he gets through this, but hard to know. I mean, thus far, Trump endorsed candidates in primary elections and eh, batting 500 ish. So. Hard to know. And Trump, in that case, has endorsed Lauren Culp. Over in the 3rd Congressional District down in southwest Washington, kind of a similar thing going on with Jamie Herrera-Butler. She was uh, another Republican member of Congress to vote for the impeachment of Donald Trump. Yeah, and she's got three kind of named challengers from the right. Um, The most prominent is Joe Kent, who has Trump's endorsement and raised a bunch of money. Um, But he's carrying a fair amount of baggage. You also have Heidi St. John, who's sort of a Christian blogger down there, and she's drawn a lot of support from what we might think of as kind of establishment Republicans in that area. And she's raised a fair amount of money. Um, Also, State Representative Vicki Kraft, who's one of the most conservative members of the legislature, she was written out of her district in the redistricting process and jumped into this race. She hasn't raised a bunch of money and figures to finish out of the money. But again, it's hard to know exactly what's happening. And there's You know, a couple of Democrats in the race, most uh, prominently Marie Perez, who are kind of hanging around hoping that Jamie Herrera Butler gets knocked out in the primary um, because Joe Kent figures to be a more vulnerable candidate in a district that's still kind of swing, even though, you know, definitely leans Republican. What about the Senate race with Senator Patty Murray? She's being uh, challenged by some uh, significant Republicans, too. Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's going to be hard for any Republican to overcome the structural disadvantage in a statewide election. 
you know, Murray's polling numbers always look a little lukewarm this time of year, but she always manages to win pretty easily. The most prominent Republican running against her is Tiffany Smiley, who's a veterans activist from the Tri-Cities area. You know, no one from Eastern Washington has won statewide you know, office in a very, very long time. Um, and I'm not seeing, you know, real evidence that, you know, Smiley would be the one to break through there. What about the state legislative races? Uh, obviously, we had the redistricting this past year. The new boundaries have been drawn, and that's what we're going to be running under uh, this time around. Uh, any big surprises? I didn't. I haven't seen a lot of real surprises. There'll be an interesting shift within the Republican caucus in the House because um, two of their most conservative members, Clippert and Kraft are running for Congress. So, and they're likely to be, um, replaced by sort of less conservative folks. Those are, you know, pretty Republican districts that they represent. Uh, there's one race that I'm following up in Northwest Washington in the 40th legislative district, which is Anacortes in the San Juan islands and part of Bellingham. Um, it's a Democrat on Democrat race. The incumbent is a first term lawmaker named Alex Rammel, and he's one of the greenest members of the legislature. He's been involved in a lot of these this legislation banning and natural gas and new construction and phasing out natural gas and buildings. That's drawn a lot of pushback from blue collar labor, specifically the plumbers and pipe fitters and the laborers, people who build the gas infrastructure. And he has a challenge from Trevor Smith, who um, is the political director for the laborers local up there and has worked in the refineries. And as you know, Anacortes, that, that district is a, a refinery district. There are two major oil refineries in Anacortes. So that's an interesting kind of Democrat on Democrat race that pits two factions of the party against one another. Also up in that area is the open seat left vacated by the death of Senator Doug Erickson. Yeah, and that's an interesting race. The Whatcom County Council, which is controlled by Democrats, replaced Erickson with Simon Sessick, who at that time was 22 years old, fresh out of college, and had a, you know, had a couple of jobs in D.C. Um, and that's sort of generally considered to be the council doing a solid for uh, Representative Sharon Shoemake, the Democrat who was already in the race there. Sefcik now has a challenger in Ben Allenboss, who's actually on the county council. Um, so there's going to be a pretty hard fought Republican primary up there. It'll be interesting to see what happens. That district has historically been Republican leaning. It's two House members are both Democrats now, but they won fairly narrowly. So, you know, I think you should, that's definitely one to watch both in August and in the fall. All right, Paul Query, editor of The Washington Observer. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be with you. We have to take a quick break. But when we come back, abortion and gay conversion therapy, conservatives see an opening with the current makeup of the Supreme Court when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. This past week, Attorney General Bob Ferguson sent a letter to members of several medical boards in Washington asking those boards to, quote, exercise discretion when licensing out-of-state medical providers who've been penalized for providing abortion services. Obviously, this has a lot to do with that leaked draft opinion from the United States Supreme Court we saw a couple of weeks ago, and as it looks like they are ready to strike down Roe versus Wade, 
So we figured we'd talk with Attorney General Bob Ferguson about that letter that he sent and what it means for abortion providers and abortion access here in Washington State. First off, Bob, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Jeff. I really appreciate it. So I guess first, tell me a little bit about this letter you sent, because it went to the Washington Medical Commission, the State Board of Osteopathic Medicine and Surgery, State Pharmacy Quality Assurance, Nursing Quality Assurance Commission, and more. What are you exactly asking them? Yeah, this is a really important issue in light of what we expect to be that overturning of Roe v. Wade that you mentioned. So these commissions and boards have an important role in our state. And what they do is they provide a license for someone coming into Washington state who, for example, might be performing abortions, healthcare in general, or gender affirming care. What we don't want to do is have them hold a conviction, a criminal conviction against one of those providers who is acting in a state that is criminalizing, for example, abortion. Uh, Typically, when you provide a license, you look for someone's criminal history. And it seems to me very unfair uh, to penalize someone from a state that is criminalizing abortion, for example, and that provider gets a conviction. They should be able to come to Washington State and provide those services here because, of course, in Washington State, it is perfectly safe and legal to have an abortion. Has there been been any precedent for this where something is illegal in another state, but it causes issues here in Washington? Yeah, I mean, you do have situations where different states are sometimes referred to as the laboratories of democracy and different laws. It seems to me here we're talking about a fundamental right for women in Washington state and for these providers who are going to be penalized, in my view, unjustly in other states that are racing to criminalize, for example, abortions or gender affirming care. So it just seems to me fair. It's it's Washington values here in Washington state that we should not punish someone who is acting in a way that is consistent with our laws and wants to come to Washington state to provide health care services that, frankly, we will need as we anticipate many women coming to Washington state from out of state in need of safe and legal abortions. Have any of these commissions or boards restricted other medical providers for other procedures in other states. I mean, this seems like almost something that's brand new that we haven't really heard of or dealt with before. Well, I think that's a fair point, Jeff. We're obviously in uncharted territory when it comes to um, women's health care in light of this draft opinion that seems likely to be affirmed by a majority of the court. So while we're in early days of what might be a new reality, from my perspective, a dark reality, but it seemed to me to start thinking about what would it mean if and when the court acts that way, the Supreme Court, and what that means for Washington state and for people who want to come to Washington state, either one, seeking health care that they can't get in their home state, or number two, a health care provider who now would be criminalized for acting um, to provide an abortion, for example, hey, let's make sure that they have um, a spot to come to in Washington state and they're not being penalized and not provide a license for providing abortions or, for example, gender-affirming care in their home state. We're going to get to the issue of gender-affirming care in just a few moments, but uh, with regards to women that are seeking abortion services or abortion care coming from states where this may be banned following that potential strike down of Roe Roe versus Wade, or at least the overturning of Roe versus Wade that is expected, we've seen some states try to make it illegal for their citizens to go to other states to get an abortion. What are your thoughts on that? What are the legal implications there? Yeah, it's it's a issue that my team and I are looking at extremely closely. We have a group in my office who are looking at those issues because you're exactly right. A number of states are proposing legislation to literally criminalize 
a woman from a state for leaving that state and coming to, for example, Washington to seek an abortion, and also, Jeff, seeking to criminalize anyone who assists that woman in seeking that safe and legal abortion somewhere else. So we could have a situation, for example, where a woman in Washington state is trying to assist her sister who lives in a state that now is outlawing abortion and criminalizing it, that Washingtonian could potentially be facing legal jeopardy. So in my view, another state cannot place those restrictions on a Washingtonian or someone who comes to Washington state. Uh, They cannot criminalize that action. And so that's the type of potential legal action that in my office we're preparing for and want to make sure we're standing up for Washingtonians or individuals who come to Washington state seeking a safe and legal abortion. Can a state even do that, criminalize something that happens outside of their jurisdiction, outside of their political borders? In in my view, uh, in this context, the answer will be no. That said, uh, I anticipate that states are going to pass these laws. They're being proposed, and we need to be prepared for that reality because I do think it's coming. And, you know, it's uh, that can have a real you know, adverse effect on so many women who just the very threat of that type of criminal sanction might prevent them from coming to Washington state or a woman or an individual here in Washington state assisting someone in a state that outlaws abortion. So we want to make sure we're sending a message as clearly as we can that we're going to do everything we can in the office, the attorney general to stand up for people here in Washington state or those who come to Washington state. I'm not an attorney by any means. I am just a mere journalist, but it seems to me that on its face, that would be unconstitutional, regardless of the issue of abortion. If, if it goes to state by state, a state couldn't ban someone from getting an abortion in another state or anything else, because wouldn't that violate the interstate commerce clause? Yeah, there'd be all sorts of, frankly, legal issues that we would raise about why we think that another state cannot criminalize a Washingtonian or someone who comes to Washington state. But, you know, look, if uh, I'm sure not that long ago, a lot of folks uh, wouldn't have thought that our U.S. Supreme Court would be as conservative as it is, uh, that would be taking the, seem to be taking the direction that's taking on all sorts of issues. And so, you know, these days with the courts, one can't be too sure. And we need to do everything we can to make sure that uh, we're advocating for people here in Washington state. We're talking with Attorney General Bob Ferguson here on the Northwest Politicast, and we wanted to also talk about this other case that came before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals this past week. Uh, A Christian counselor wanted the court to, as he says, protect his First Amendment freedoms. This goes to the issue of conversion therapy. The argument from his attorneys, the Alliance for Defending Freedom, say that banning the conversion therapy restricts his right to First Amendment expression, restricts his right to speech. Your office is involved in this. What's your take on this? Yeah, well, so far, our take has been accepted by the courts. We won at the federal trial court uh, level in which the federal trial court judge agreed that our state law that bans this truly outrageous conversion therapy, that law is constitutional. And so for, we're talking about minors here, folks who are under the age of 18, Uh, That conversion therapy is now illegal in Washington state, thanks to a state law. The federal district court upheld Washington's law. 
This individual is now challenging it to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's the argument that we're having that my team will be advocating on behalf of our state law, and we're confident we'll prevail there. To play devil's advocate, though, can you really restrict what someone says to someone else, let alone what a doctor says to a patient? The idea of the global gag rule comes to mind about doctors not being allowed to counsel women into abortion. It seems to me that argument has been used by conservative states, conservative lawmakers on the other side. Yeah, no, the courts rejected the plaintiff's argument. And a key reason is because sort of that uh, conversion therapy, medical experts have been clear that conversion therapy is harmful to minors. And that's where things cross the line, right? You're no longer just having a conversation. Those actions in terms of conversion therapy, medically, it's been established that is harmful to minors. And so that's why the state has an interest in protecting the health and well-being of minors here in Washington state. And that's why the court agreed with the state of Washington over the plaintiff's First Amendment assertions. That's why I'm extremely confident the Ninth Circuit will agree. Look, a number of states now, I think 10 or 12, have banned conversion therapy. Courts have upheld those bans for precisely that reason. It is harmful to minors, and that's why that practice is being banned. Are you concerned that if the Ninth Circuit upholds the trial court's ruling that the Supreme Court might take up the case, considering its current conservative makeup? Well, I mean, anytime we're prevailing in a case and the Supreme Court takes up, that's obviously area for concern that they want to review it one thing at a time. First, we've got to prevail at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I will say, however, that even if it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, the evidence is so clear that this conversion therapy is harmful to minors, that I believe this United States Supreme Court will see that as well, will recognize that, and will uphold what we believe is a um, thoughtful and appropriate state law that protects minors in our state. What exactly does the state law say? This conversion therapy, is it just counseling, discussion with a, a counselor, or are there medical prescription or procedures that are also banned? What, what is at stake here? Yeah, it can really run the gamut of actions from what the procedures are. But at the end of the day, what conversion therapy purports to do, it tries to change who you are and does so in a way that medically speaking, medical experts, the evidence is clear, does harm to minors. And the state, of course, has an interest in protecting minors in their state. All sorts of laws go into place that protect minors. And this is an example of that. And that's why even if this case does get to the U.S. Supreme Court, we're obviously focused on the Ninth Circuit hearing, but if it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, we feel confident we'll prevail there because the evidence is so clear. All right, Attorney General Bob Ferguson with the state of Washington, thank you so much for your time and insight. Jeff, thanks you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, we'll hear from one of the attorneys for the therapist challenging the ban on gay conversion therapy when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Last segment, we spoke with Attorney General Bob Ferguson about this case over conversion therapy and the challenge to that law with regards to minors here in Washington State. Joining me now is an attorney for the other side from the Alliance for Defending Freedom. It's Jake Warner. He represents the doctor in this case. Uh, first off, welcome and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Tell me a little bit about your client and this lawsuit. Give me some background. Well, sure. Brian Tingley is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Tacoma, Washington. He serves uh, people from from all backgrounds, uh, uh, children, uh, parents, uh, couples, uh, and these people come to him with a wide variety of issues. They want 
help with their anxiety and their stress management. But sometimes they come with uh, relational issues and they are struggling with uh, gender confusion or with unwanted same-sex attraction. And uh, Brian wants to help his clients achieve the goals that they set for themselves. You you talk about the same-sex attraction. Obviously, if the patient's an adult, it's one thing. But in this case, uh, you're dealing with minors, uh, and that's what the law prohibits here in Washington State is this conversion therapy. Well, what Brian does is he engages in simple conversation. He doesn't do anything unusual. And what the Washington law does is it interferes with his conversations with his clients who want help. His clients set the goals for what they want. And when he's dealing with children, typically parents often arrange the first visit with him, but he never goes forward with a conversation with a client unless it is a voluntary thing. And again, all Brian does is have a simple conversation with his client to help them achieve the goals that they set for themselves. But isn't this in the auspices of treatment? Because treatments can be regulated by any number of government organizations, and treatment can be either pharmaceutical, it can be physical surgery, or it can just be counseling as it is in this case. Well, what Brian does is simple talk. It's simple counseling. It's not going into other kinds of treatments and different things like that. And what the Supreme Court has recently said in the NIFLA case is that this type of counseling is protected speech. And we've seen lawsuits pop up around the country over similar issues. And uh, just recently, the 11th Circuit ruled that the government had no business trying to dictate conversations in the counseling room. They say that clients deserve to have the opportunity to seek the advice and the counsel that they want to achieve the goals that they set for themselves. And Brian just wants to help out these clients who want to achieve their own goals. Why are you seeking to have this sort of broad effect rather than relief for your client? You want the law struck down. What we're asking for here is uh, the court to um, declare unconstitutional a certain application of this law that would restrict counseling conversations. We don't believe the government should have the power to forbid clients from seeking help that they want. Uh, Brian's clients come to him because they want help achieving uh, comfort to live the life that they want to, often a life that is consistent with their faith values. Many of Brian's clients share his same faith and come to him for that reason. And we don't think that the government should be in the business of saying that these clients can't get the help that they need and that they deserve. But that bridge has already been crossed. There's already been precedent here. You've got the global gag rule, which bans the United States government from providing funding to any organization that even counsels abortion, that even suggests abortion. So the restriction on what doctors can say to patients is already there. Well, that's not what this case is about. This case is strictly about counseling. When you're going into different contexts, such as abortion, you're often talking about prescribed medical treatments and sometimes operations and informed consent laws. This is strictly counseling. And and what courts are starting to make clear around the country is that the government cannot uh, interfere with these types of conversations between a client and his or her counselor. They want to, the First Amendment protects these conversations, and these people deserve to have uh, an opportunity to meet the goals that they set for themselves. But again, we're talking about children here, and children who are in a particularly vulnerable spot. They've come to a counselor to discuss issues, maybe on their own, maybe at the behest of their parents or family, 
And you've got a counselor who has a great deal of power and a great deal of influence over them. And, and you're saying that there should be no restrictions whatsoever on what that counselor can do as far as counseling treatment. Because again, treatment can be just conversation. It doesn't have to have a pharmaceutical element or a surgical element. Well, you make a distinction there between what counselors say and what uh, therapists do. And, and what this law, ta- what, what this lawsuit is about is what counselors and their clients can can talk about. But when you think about what kinds of conversations that our country has historically protected, conversations between a counselor and his or her client has been among the most secret, the most protected conversations that are the privileged in court. Uh, so what we're asking the court to do in this setting is to protect, to continue protecting the privacy of these conversations and allow clients to seek the help that they so desperately want to get. But as we heard from Attorney General Bob Ferguson in our last segment, we're talking about minors, and there are plenty of laws on the books that protect minors from the influence of adults. Minors have had this sort of carve-out in American law where they get special protections here. It's one thing if you're talking with an adult patient, but this is a child. And what Brian does here, like I said earlier, is that often when parents bring minors or children to uh, have counseling with Brian, he doesn't move forward with these children unless they uh, uh, voluntarily consent, unless they want to have these conversations. And even then, Brian wants to help them achieve the goals that they set for themselves. The clients bring the issues to the table. And what Brian does is he sits there, he listens, and he talks through those issues with them. Now, you lost in the trial court, but appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. We heard the oral arguments on that this week. Are you prepared to take this all the way to the United States Supreme Court? That would be a possible next step for sure. And we're seeing kind of, uh, you know courts around the country increasingly weigh in on this issue. I mentioned earlier that the Eleventh Circuit just recently issued a decision upholding the First Amendment rights of counselors and their clients in this context. Um, if things don't go Brian's way at the Ninth Circuit, um, certainly the U.S. Supreme Court could be a, a viable next step. All right, Jake Warner with the Alliance for Defending Freedom. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Still to come, what can Congress do about the shortage of baby formula when the Northwest Politicast continues after this? Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogula. The Food and Drug Administration says it's taken steps to ramp up supply of baby formula. This is shortages continue across the country. FDA Commissioner Dr. Robert Califf earlier this week. The FDA expects supply to continue to improve over the next couple of months. Still, lawmakers continue to pressure the Food and Drug Administration about the failures that led to a nationwide shortage. Laura Riley is covering for the Washington Post and spoke with our Bill O'Neill. Laura, what were these House members focusing on during Robert Califf's testimony this week? Well, he was there as a delayed uh, meeting to talk about the FDA budget for 2023. And a lot of them were saying, basically, that didn't work out so well this past year because the issue with the baby formula shortage right now is that there was a whistleblower in September who came forward to say there were a variety of safety protocol problems at the Sturgis, Michigan facility for Abbott. And it took until December for someone at the FDA to basically engage with that whistleblower and uh, move it forward at the FDA. And it wasn't, wasn't until February when the FDA went to Abbott, did an additional investigation, and suggested a recall and, and shut the factory down. 
So it really took a number of months to recognize there was a problem on the US or on the FDA's part. Here we are at this point in time. What is the FDA doing to get formula to the market for parents with kids with allergies in particular? Because that's been a big problem. Well, Caliph yesterday said that he would expedite the starting up of production for the specialty formulas that Abbott does. But the White House has really stepped into the void here and has done a lot of things to expedite formula production domestically and the importation of it. So Department of uh, Defense aircrafts are going to be used to pick up formula from other countries and to kind of bypass the normal shipping routes and to bring it back and get it into the hands of shoppers. And also, last night, Nestle announced that it would export a lot of formula from international spots back to the U.S., as did a couple of the other major players in the formula space. So there's a lot of reason to think that the normal formulas will be back in reasonable supply in the next week or two. But it is those specialty formulas for specialty needs for people who have, for instance, uh, significant food allergies. Those formulas may still take a little while to get up and running and back kind of fully in stock. Now, of course, low supply typically means high demand, and that typically means higher costs. What's being done on that front? Well, the White House said the other day that it would come down really hard on price gouging or kind of, you know, people profiteering off of this what in many cases is verges on a tragedy. I mean, we've had a number of hospitalizations over the past few days with kids whose parents couldn't find the proper formula. And so some of them are being fed intravenously. Some parents have reported, you know, watering down formula or pivoting to solid food more sooner than they want to um, as a method of, of dealing with this problem. So it really is changing the eating habits of some of our most vulnerable. That's Laura Riley. Read much more on this online. Go to WashingtonPost.com. And that's our Bill O'Neill. We have to take another break, but still to come, Congress out of this world as lawmakers look into the issue of UFOs when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela, and the truth is out there, or at least it is on Capitol Hill. Congress finally holding its first hearing in decades on UFOs. Agent Mulder would be proud. Joining me now is ABC's Faith Abube from Washington, D.C. And this sounds like something that is made for the nighttime comedy shows. But uh, what exactly is Congress trying to get at right now? You know, Jeff, you mentioned the truth is out there. You know, what is also out there right now is a lot of unanswered questions. We came out of this um, hearing on Capitol Hill with a lot of more questions, perhaps, uh, than we, we had when we went in, because now we're learning that Pentagon officials were taking these unidentified or unexplained aerial phenomena, as we've all known them as UFOs. They're taking it very seriously. They're investigating them, but there are still a lot of things they just don't know. They don't have a lot of answers. The vast majority of these incidents remain unexplained. However, this hearing itself is very significant. As you mentioned, this is the first time in years, we're talking 50 years since the 1960s that Congress is holding a hearing on UFOs. You know, as you know, there's been a lot of interest from uh, people in the public wanting to know whether we are alone in this universe or if there's other life out there beyond the earth this is no longer just a fringe idea or should i say crazy idea you know it's it's actually something that is being discussed in the mainstream you have intelligence officials from the pentagon on capitol hill testifying about this congress is really interested at the bottom of this the reality is they want to know 
do any of these unidentified objects, unidentified aerial phenomena, UFOs, whatever you want to call them, do they actually pose a threat to our national security? And that's really the basis for this hearing on Capitol Hill. You have Ronald Moultrie, the Pentagon's top intelligence official, and Scott Bray, the deputy director of the Naval Intelligence, both of them um, really updating us on the report the Pentagon released last summer. Congress wants to know what's going on. Are there more reports and what are they finding out? And in fact, what we did learn is that the reports you know, have increased significantly since last summer. Last summer in that report that they released, they had 144 reports of encounters between 2004 and 2021. That's a 17 year period. They had 144 reports. And now um, they're reporting that there are four, approximately 400 reports in their database. So this is really significant because the Pentagon officials say there's this destigmatization of this idea or the, this discussion about UFOs. And so now military pilots feel more comfortable in actually putting in these reports and discussing them. And, and that's a, a big step forward. And they want these reports to continue so they can continue looking into them. Now, as for what do they mean? What are they? Are they from, you know, any alien planet or wherever they may be from? Uh, some of the explanations we're getting so far is that this could be, you know, counterintelligence devices from potential adversaries. They don't know. They're looking into that. Could they be a highly sensitive sensor from a U.S. military equipment? And so a lot of questions are still out there about what these things are, but they are acknowledging that they are out there. They just don't have answers for them just yet. So what are these encounters like? Are, are pilots seeing them as they're flying? Are, are we seeing them from the ground? Uh, kind of describe what we're seeing out there. Yeah, so it's, it's a mix of things, right? Um, there are videos out there of military pilots in the air and then suddenly seeing these you know weird objects just flying around. There, there was a video that I, I saw uh, where the pilots were like, whoa, this thing is going really fast. I'm paraphrasing here. This thing is going really fast. Uh, the wind speed is about 120 knots, but this, these tiny, tiny objects were going in the opposite direction of the wind. And so how are they doing this? And they sounded amazed by this. Uh, you've had incidents where, for example, the video that was circulating last summer, uh, it was a video from 2019. It was captured on a, a U.S. Navy destroyer um, where it showed some pyramid-shaped objects just floating in the air. And these people who were looking at, at these things had no idea what they were. And finally, we were able to get some answers from uh, from Pentagon officials. They, said, they say that they've actually determined what that was because they were able to get video from another or a different Navy ship that showed that these pyramid objects were just drones and the light was reflecting on them in the way that looked like they were pyramid-shaped objects. And so they were able to at least explain that one. But again, there are hundreds out there that they're still trying to figure out answers to. So where are we seeing these encounters? You mentioned Navy ships. Is this out at sea? Are we seeing them around sensitive military installations? Where are we seeing these encounters? Again, we're talking about hundreds of reports at this point. They have approximately 400 in the system. So it's, it's just... It runs the gamut. It, it, you know, they're seeing them all over. You're, you're seeing servicemen and, and women seeing them, whether they were in the plane, whether they were in the ships, it's off the coast. So it's all over. 
is just they're seeing these things and they don't know what they are. And at this point, the Pentagon has not ruled out completely whether these are, you know, otherworldly. However, a lot of the data that they say they are looking at shows that, you know, some of the ones that they've been able to at least to resolve in some way had some sort of man-made aspect or maybe scientific explanation for them. But again, a lot of these questions are still unanswered and they're still investigating. They have established a permanent task force at the Pentagon to go through these reports and investigate them, which is really interesting because the last time we had a, a, you know, some sort of task force at the Pentagon was back in the, in the early 1960s when they canceled Project Blue Book. They had that from the mid-50s all the way to the early 1960s, and then they quietly you know, canceled that program in 1969 and didn't really investigate these things for years. And then they quietly started you know, investigating them again in 2017 after a Senate Intelligence Committee really demanded more information. So at the, at the bottom of this is really lawmakers really wanting to know, okay, these things are out there. These pilots, these servicemen and women, they are seeing these things. People are reporting them. What are they? And at the end of the day, do they pose a threat to the U.S.? You mentioned a few of them have already been sort of debunked or explained, uh, particularly that one that looked like a, a pyramid. Have, have they figured out where these things are coming from? Are these drones from adversaries? Are they, uh, you know, our own military test equipment? What's going on there? Those are all part of the theories that they are looking at right now. Uh, and so, like, one of them is looking into whether these are from... Um, counterintelligence devices. So are these uh, potential adversaries of other countries trying to use these devices that we've never seen that are, you know, trying to spy on us in, in some ways? Another theory is just, you know, some military equipment that, you know, these pilots maybe they haven't used or experienced before and they just don't know what they are. I mean, there's just a number of theories out there that they are looking into, nothing definitive. They were able to um, look at 18 of the incidents where they said it appeared that they had what they called demonstrated advanced technology. And so, again, there are a lot of things out there that they haven't made available to the public just yet. This was a, it wasn't a you know super long hearing compared to the hours and hours of hearings we've seen on Capitol Hill. So not a lot of information disclosed, but what we did walk away with is this idea that they are serious about this. Um, they are looking into this and they plan to be more transparent with the public moving forward. All right. Faith Abube, reporter for ABC News in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. And that will do it for this episode of Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.